Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you. I, uh, I thank God for uh, Rick and his family. I wanted to thank the elders of Redemption as well. And just, just be glad that uh, we can be together to encourage each other in our faith, as, as Paul says in Romans 1. Uh, it's funny how uh, me and Rick met. The first words he ever said to me uh, were outside of our first class with his flat bill like this. You can barely see his eyes. He's kind of a Cali cat. He likes rap music. Uh, he's just kind of cool. He's a cool cat. And um, he, he was kind of the, the guy, the, the player that would sleep in class and um, in class we introduced ourselves and I said hey the most important thing to me is my faith and Rick kind of you know popped up and after class he said hey bro you a Christian bro and we ended up being best friends from that moment forward I mean I remember him walking kind of like this is kind of how he used to walk you know that's kind of how so if you want to know more about that just ask him but uh, no, seriously, so grateful to hear all that God is doing in your life, your faith, your love for Christ. Truly an incredible church. Met so many just awesome people in Jesus this morning. And you have great elders. And just praise God um, that we can come together no matter what, what state we're in, around the world, wherever we are, and have that affection in Christ. Amen. And just love each other. And uh, praise the Lord. I, uh, I remember regarding anxiety recently was probably the most anxious my family had been. Uh, someone I had worked with for years, uh, four or five years, and we, we saw each other four or five times a week. Um, we trusted them. We knew their family, their kids. He knocked on my door one Sunday morning at, at my office at the church in, uh, in Coppell and, um, everything seemed normal, but he said, Hey, do you have a second? And I want to come in. I said, sure. Yeah, come on in. Let's talk what, what's on your mind. And all of a sudden, he gets what I call crazy eyes and, and he looked like something had overtaken him and he began to just, just rail at me and curse me and cuss me out. Someone I had trusted and known and we had a good friendship, uh, bleep this bleep that, you know, he just, he's cussing me out and he's saying, I hope you mess up so bad today. I hope everybody sees you for who you are. And I'm just sitting there in shock. And he just says it, walks out, slams the door shut. And so I go and grab our executive director, uh, my friend, Chris, and I tell him what happened. We pray about it. And I say, Hey, he's not, he, something's, something's off. He's out of his mind and this is not him. Uh, he's not safe. Let's just ask him to, to leave campus for this morning, follow up with him. And so he did that. And we just, we did everything we could to, to, uh, just grab his keys and, and not allow him on campus until we figured out what's going on and if he's safe or not to return. Well, I just had this gut feeling in my stomach that he was going to return to campus at some point that week. And we have a, a preschool in our church and 120 kids on campus with teachers. They get there at, you know, seven or eight in the morning. And I get a call about seven thirty, eight o'clock Tuesday morning when school's back in session. And, uh, we had told everybody, if you see this vehicle, uh, let us know immediately while well, his vehicle was on campus and the teachers are about to show up. All the kids are about to be on campus. So I'm racing to the church and uh, the cop, I called the cops on the way. They show up. Um, what had happened was he had, he had broken into the building. He had gone to his office and he'd grabbed a sledgehammer and he had gone to my office. No one was there, but he had gone to my office. He'd gone through the first door and then he turned right and went through the second door, but he sledgehammered the door and he broke through the window and the door was just like off the hinges, completely destroyed. And he went into my office with a crowbar about this long and he just destroyed my office. He was looking for me. Uh, we, it, from there, since I wasn't there, he proceeded to go to our roof and he climbed about three or four stories up on our roof. And there's an A-frame where you have to walk sort of over this A-frame roof to a massive steeple, a glass 
glass steeple. And he sledgehammered the, the glass, the 10-foot glass door, shattered it, cut himself. He thought I was in the steeple uh, fighting Lucifer with the archangel Michael. And he thought God had sent him to go and, and take me out, basically, like he had been sent by the Lord. We, we didn't know why he was so out of his mind at this point. For two weeks, my family was just completely anxious and worried. I went and did the very Texas thing and bought an awesome shotgun, which I did not know how to use at the time, but we still have that. You know, my favorite thing to do now is just empty it and just, you know, cock that thing for the sound. But we come to find out two weeks later that uh, through, through therapy and those types of things that um, he had uh, been taking some kind of relaxant substance. It was a CBD substance and it caused um, like great paranoia and also hallucinations. And so he, uh, he thought within his hallucinations that I was a demon prince and that he had been sent by God to deal with me. I mean, it's just insane, right? But for those two weeks, my wife and I have a picture of my, my kids here uh, with us, uh, Judah, our three-year-old, Ambrose, our one-year-old, all I could think about was their safety, you know, and think about my anxieties over this guy's been to my house. He knows where I live. I don't have a great secure. I mean, my door is not that strong. If he can sledgehammer through that, he could sledgehammer through this. And so, you know, we're, we're praying through this, but feeling very anxious. Um, I, I think we were just a people that is very prone to anxiety, not just for big things like that, but if you're anything like me, I'm, I'm anxious about even little things. I am the worst with anxiety over health symptoms, any health symptom. Uh, let, take for example, uh, dizziness. I had vertigo one time and I thought, I told Aaron immediately that the room, I felt dizzy and I said, I've got a brain tumor. I'm done. Uh, get the will updated. Like I'm just, I'm very extremist with health stuff. I had dizziness uh, and tingling in my arm one time. And I said, Aaron, I'm having a heart attack. You know, it's, it's over. Just get ready to be without me. Um, I, I'm just this, I'm just, I don't know about you, but I'm prone to be anxious and to get stuck in a cycle in my head where I'm thinking about a problem and trying to solve it on my own. I can't sleep at night. I've got uh, just all these things in my mind. One big thing is just as, as a pastor and just as a Christian in general, you probably experienced this too, that when someone says at work or in family, hey, we need to talk. I mean, that, that alone is like, okay, will you at least tell me what we're going to talk about, right? So that I can prepare. I hate that phrase, we need to talk. Hey, what do you want to talk about? Well, I can't tell you that. Well, great, thanks. Now the next five days before we meet, all I can think about is our conversation. Or just having to have difficult conversations in the church, you have no idea how they're going to react or difficult conversations with your parents. They're, they're reaching the end of their life. They don't want to go to a... Um, retirement community or an assisted living and you have to have those difficult conversations which can split relationships and split churches. I mean, it's, we, we are overburdened by life and the things that happen in our lives. I, I think of Martha and Mary in Luke chapter 10. You don't have to turn there at this point, but Luke 10, Jesus comes to their house. They host him. Verse 40, but Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. I think that description of Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. I think every one of us, if we're honest, can relate to that on a daily basis. We have so many things we're anxious about from getting the kids to school, getting them ready. I mean, even this morning, we're going to the mountains after this and we're trying to get everything packed into the car. We're living out of bags. My kids' schedules are just crazy. They can't sleep well here. Um, just trying to even get to church in the morning feeling anxious and troubled. I don't know what that is for you. I don't know what you're anxious about right now, but I'm sure there's something 
on your mind, something that's gripping your attention. Um, And you have a couple of options in that moment. You can go to your own resources where you are trying to solve the issue by your own wisdom and your own power and your, your own scheming. Or the first instinct could be to go to the Lord in prayer and just cast those things upon him because he is able to deliver and provide and redeem and save. So what is it that you are anxious about right now? I know there's got to be something. But in Philippians 4, as Rick read, you can go to the text in Philippians 4, verse 4. Uh, the Lord is very clear with us, very encouraging to us. J- <laughs> Rick said that James um, has been, or, uh, just James has kind of been in your face as a church. He's got some hard words for you. And uh, so with anxiety and trouble in your life, I wanted to encourage you this morning, uh, not, uh, not give you a hard word per se. But the basis of what he says here is not to worry about anything, but instead to pray about everything. He goes on to say that God's peace is found and, and experienced through prayer in Jesus Christ. That that apart from praying with a thankful heart, uh, a supplicating heart where we're urgently bringing our hearts to God and opening wide to him and, and casting our anxieties on him, that we won't walk in the peace that God has promised us. John uh, fourteen twenty seven. Jesus has promised those who are in Jesus Christ, those who trust in Jesus, those who are bought by his blood. He said, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. This is for those who have peace with God through Jesus. This is for those who are in Jesus. So these are promises, obviously, to believers, not to unbelievers. Now, Paul, at this point in Philippians, is he's in prison. I mean, he could, he could be beheaded any day at this point. Um, he, he has every reason to be worried and anxious and afraid. He knows the Philippian church. He knows churches throughout history. Even this church is going to face some kind of conflict or opposition or difficulty in following Jesus. We all experience the anxieties and difficulties of life. And then add to that, following Jesus, the devil is prowling around hunting us like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. We're opposed by the world and we're becoming more and more on the fringes of society as time goes on over the next several decades. It's just not cool to be a Christian. That is not the thing to do, to claim some kind of exclusive truth from heaven that Jesus is the only way. That's the most offensive thing that you could be in this culture, right? To have this exclusive truth in Jesus. So Paul and the Lord knows we have suffering and we are an anxious people. And so the first thing he says in this text right here in Philippians four is rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He he gives the command twice rejoice. And again, I say it rejoice. And he says, do it always. It's so fascinating to me just to think that we often view joy as something that we passively experience, which is true. We experience something that makes us feel joyful, but that is not what Paul is saying here. He's saying you're in a situation or your mind is in a state that you don't feel much joy. And he's saying, despite that experience or despite that lack of passive joy, it's a command to actually do the thing called rejoicing. And the way you do that is not by rejoicing in yourself suffering or in your anxiety or in your pain or circumstance, it is to rejoice in the Lord Jesus himself. 
It's not rejoicing in a circumstance. It's rejoicing in a person. It's rejoicing in who Jesus is, that he is God the Son, that he came down and suffered and died for all your sin, paying that debt, rose from the, this he's alive today, that he's in heaven at the right hand of the Father, that he has justified you by his blood, that he has given you the helper of the Holy Spirit, that you're adopted and you have perfect access to God through Jesus, that he has given you all of these promises of what he will do now for you and what he's going to do in the future, that no matter what circumstance you are in right now or what state of mind you're in, you can rejoice in him. You don't have to rejoice in anything outside of him. There's a steadfast joy in him. And so this is a command to us as the people of God, bought by Jesus and living in Jesus, to rejoice, to rejoice always. I love how Paul is honest, because Paul suffered more than all of us as a Christian. I mean, he was adrift at sea, he was beaten with rods, he was lashed. I mean, he was stoned nearly to death and then got up and went back into the same exact city. That makes no sense to me. But he was just crazy. But, but he, he said something like this. He said, I am sorrowful. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. The paradox of the Christian life is that just like everyone in the world, there is great sorrow in our lives at times and fears and anxieties. And yet, because we are in the Lord Jesus by his grace through faith, we can rejoice in the Lord. And he goes on in verse five, look at verse five. And he says, let your gentleness or reasonableness be known or evident to everyone. Now, the ESV translation, if that's what you have, it says reasonableness. But most scholars talk about how This word really carries the idea of meekness, gentleness, not demanding its own rights. Someone not demanding their own rights. I'm sorry, my voice gave out in the first service randomly. And it's starting to do it again, so we'll see how we do. But he, he basically says, let your gentleness be evident. And my question to you is this, why would the apostle, why would he say rejoice? And then two verses later say, don't be anxious and pray. Why would he put gentleness in the middle of that? What does gentleness have to do with rejoicing and not being anxious? And here's the simple, the simplest answer I could think of. And I've read so much on this, and I think this is what it is. That when we are anxious, which means we are prayerless, we are not gentle people. My most prayerless days are my most anxious days. I don't know about you. Is that true for you? And, and those are the days where I am the most irritable. That's the day I'm most impatient. I, I'm not gentle with my kids or my wife. Or <clears throat> if I have a deadline or pressure or a hard conversation, I am not in a gentle state of mind. I'm not in a rejoicing state of mind. I'm in an anxious, tense, harsh state of mind. And that is usually because I'm not filled with prayer in Jesus. And I'm not focusing my mind on rejoicing in the Lord. What I'm doing is I'm fixating on my circumstance or the thing that is coming that I'm fearing rather than fixing my mind on all that the Lord is for me and all that he's done for me and filling my heart with prayer, casting my anxieties. And so as we pray and as we seek the Lord and as we rejoice in who he is and all he's doing and all he's done, there is a gentleness about us. The most prayerful people are the most gentle people, the most rejoicing people. The calmest. You ever been, you know someone like that? Where they're just so prayerful and being around them is so easy. That's what the Lord wants us to be like. He wants us to be filled with that. Verse five, he goes on and he encourages you and he says, the Lord is at hand. Rejoice, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident. And then he says, the Lord is at hand. 
What's so good about this is that often in Scripture, this idea of the Lord being at hand speaks of his return. We, we find that throughout Scripture. But what I want to point out is that it usually says the day of the Lord is drawing near. It doesn't always say the Lord is at hand. And so what I think Paul is really emphasizing is not only his return to make all things new and make all things right and wipe away our tears and resurrect our bodies so that we share in glory. I think he's saying the Lord is near to you. The Lord is near. You can rejoice in the Lord and you can rejoice because the Lord is very near. Psalm 16, 8. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Rejoicing, not shaken, feeling security. My whole being is rejoicing. Why? Because he is at my right hand. He's this near, right there. The Lord is near. Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. He's our shepherd. He is with us in the darkness and in the midst of evil and in the midst of darkness. The Lord is with us and that is enough. That is sufficient. That the Lord is at hand. And that creates rejoicing. And rejoicing produces a gentleness. That the Lord is at hand. Paul goes on in 2 Timothy 4 to describe suffering and opposition. Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first events, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. What was sufficient for Paul? What is sufficient for you in the midst of trial of any kind? That the Lord is at hand. The Lord is right here. He is at my right hand. I will not be moved. And then he gets really to the heart of this section in verse 6, which you are probably very familiar with. In verse 6, he says, Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. That in Jesus, God's will for you is not anxiety. It is not fear. In fact, he forbids us as his people, just as he forbids us from greed and idolatry and covetousness and gossip and slander and lust. Just as he forbids all of these things, he forbids us from being a people that allow ourselves to be overrun by anxiety. And and I feel that struggle where I sometimes allow myself to live in an anxious state of mind. And then in that moment, I fail to pray and I fail to cry out to the Lord and I fail to remember who he is and I fail to remember that he is at my right hand. He says, don't be anxious about any, but verse six, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. There are two main verbs right here in verse six. They are this, be anxious for nothing. That's one. And then he says in everything, prayer, supplication with thanksgiving, and then verb two, let your requests be made known to God. 
Be anxious for nothing. Rather, let these requests be made known. And I, I think of my dad, who was a big Christmas morning guy. I don't know if you celebrate with gifts and unveiling of all these things. But my dad always just filled the living room with gifts. And we would go downstairs and tear everything apart and open everything. But we always knew my dad's favorite part of the morning was when he would run back to the closet or run back to the car and he'd, he'd bring out the big gifts, like the big guns, right? And he'd bring in the bike or he'd give the car when we turned 16 or he'd bring out an electric guitar or a drum set or whatever it was. There was this unveiling moment of the true gifts. And and the word he actually uses here is to unveil, to reveal your request to God. Like stop hiding your anxieties, thinking that you are bothering God with your prayer, Thinking thinking that you have to actually get rid of your anxiety before you can pray or get yourself into a right state of mind before you can cry out to him. I struggle with that. Like in my prayers, I'm thinking, oh man, I got to come to God in a right state of mind. I I must be bothering God with my selfish requests in prayer. We're not bothering God. God does not expect us to, to fix ourselves and fix our state of mind before we come and pray to him. It's coming and praying to him in our anxieties and in our fears that actually brings about the, the peace of God that guards our hearts. And so I would encourage you in this verse where he's saying, don't be anxious, but when you are anxious, unveil all of your requests. First Peter 5 says, just go ahead and cast those babies on him. Cast anxiety on him. He cares for you, Peter says. There's this idea of this is too heavy for me to bear. And I don't know what's too heavy for you to carry on your own and what's really weighing your soul down, but he does not want you to try to fix your state of mind before you throw those upon him. He says, just toss it on him. Just toss it on him. I'm always carrying stuff for my kids, right? They're always just piling stuff. When I'm packing the car, I'm just carrying all the stuff that's too heavy for them to carry. And that's what God wants you to do. Just cast those burdens on him and stop waiting until you feel like you're in a right state of heart or like you're cleaned up enough to come to your father. I think it's Tim Keller that said the only person that can wake a sleeping king in the middle of the night is his child. That's the only person that can come. We are not pestering God. We do not have to perform for God before he will somehow perform our prayers. And if, if you're anything like me, I get stuck in that mindset. Like, like, I know I'm saved by grace. I know there's nothing I could do that Jesus paid all the costs on the cross. He paid the debt. But some, for some reason in my prayer life, in my daily walk, I act like I have to somehow be sort of like more acceptable for my prayers to be more acceptable. It just doesn't make sense. And so he's saying, do this unveiling, reveal what's going on. You know, when you're trying to pick a, a restaurant with your wife, men in the room, as a process, and you're just like, just tell me what you want, you know? It's like, I, my wife's pregnant right now. I'm like, I'm thinking, I know you have cravings, you know? Like, th- don't say you don't care. I know you care where we eat, right? Just reveal that to me. And that's exactly what God is saying to us. I love Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. There's this invitation to just come and ask and seek and knock. There is this promise, not that you'll receive everything you ever ask for, but that God is a good father who gives good gifts to his children. Look at verse nine. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. 
part of our problem and part of my problem for years was having all the right theology. And I was saved. I had this dark night of the soul for years. Rick, Rick walked with me through this where I knew theologically God loved me. I had moments where I experienced the depth of that love in my experience. I was born again. I was justified. I was forgiven. I was secure. And yet I really wrestled to believe the love God had for me in Christ. John described this way. He said, he said, we should know and believe the love God has for us. It's not just like know it theologically, but actually like feel and believe the truth of that reality. And One of the reasons we don't pray urgently and we don't approach boldly to the throne of grace is because we struggle to believe that I can just come freely. That God truly does love me even in my sins, even in my struggle to walk in the spirit. That my approach to God has nothing to do with my performance. Your ability to approach God has nothing to do with you being somehow more mature in that moment or more godly in that moment. No, you come because Jesus purchased you. You come because you have a great high priest who has gone into heaven itself to intercede for you with his own blood. You don't go into heaven with your blood or with your works. You go into heaven in prayer through the blood of Christ who forever lives to intercede for you. We have a great high priest, brothers and sisters. We can approach the throne of grace as his children. I mean, for the, for the, for the life of me, I can't believe, I, I, I can't remember on a regular basis, I am in Jesus, I am saved because he chose me, and he loved me, not because I loved him. At the very basis of our salvation, being saved and secure, and having the privileges of sons and daughters in Christ, comes from the sovereign goodness of God. So why can't I approach him now as someone who is saved, freely and boldly, Right? So let's go back to the basics and say, God is a good father who's generous and he invites us to come running with our anxiety. He goes on and we're nearing the end here and he says, make those requests, unveil them and do it by prayer and supplication. You see those words, prayer and supplication. Prayer is a word, general, general prayer, all kinds of prayer. But then he gives this word supplication, which speaks to urgency. When I was in elementary school, I used to be, be a really good athlete with all the other kids, and I always beat them in the race. And so my mom's watching us run this race one day, and I fall behind. I'm losing the race. I come over crying, kind of explaining, like, I'm, I'm having trouble breathing. And my mom just thought I was being a big baby, and she's like, get back in the race. Why are you whining and complaining? And you're just losing the race, and so, you, so you're upset. Quit, quit whining about it. And I was like, no, Mom, I literally can't breathe. Like, I'm struggling to breathe. And so eventually, she takes me to the doctor, and they're like, yeah, you got asthma. You know? And my mom is just mortified that, that she's like, you big baby, get back in. And I'm like, dying of asthma. But I, but I, was, <clears throat> I was exercising supplication towards her, like, Mom, I need you now. Like, I, I, am, I am not well. And that's the idea that in our anxiety, we come with supplication. Lord, I need you now. Deliver, save, how long? Where are you? I need you near to me. I remember uh, when we first got married, Aaron and I uh, needed her to get a full-time job. I was making like two cents a year and I was going to seminary that costs like a million dollars a year. It just makes no sense. But, but so we really needed a job to even pay rent. And um, I remember Lord, I was saying, Lord, <clears throat> we've got like two weeks till school. She's, she needs to be a teacher. And you know, right before school, all the jobs are taken usually. And so it's very hard to get a job. And I said, Lord, I'm going to pray something very specific because I'm very anxious about this. I I want you to move whoever is managing the resumes in HR in whatever district you want her to be in to go back to the list right now. Look through the list. 
see her name, click it, look at her resume, give her a call, set up an interview. Well, I get a call 45 minutes later and she's like, you'll never believe what happened. I said, what? She said, someone from Richardson ISD just called saying they were looking back through the list of names of applicants. They clicked on my name, saw my resume, thought it looked good, gave me a call. I have an interview tomorrow. And I'm just sitting there like, you got to be kidding me, you know? And it's like God just, just showing off his kindness and just reminding me that I'm his son, that he knows my needs and that I can literally ask anything. And even if he says no to that thing or that request or that need, it's because it's a yes to something greater, something that will make me more holy, something that will form me more to the image of Christ and something that will bring more glory and honor to God. And so even a no is really a yes to those, those things that he is working in my life, which is namely Christ-likeness. We often hear uh, God in scripture in Romans 8, all things work together for the good of those who love God. And we often stop there, realizing that the good he is working in us is to conform us to the image of Christ so that Christ can be seen as the supreme one among us. So everything, answers to prayer or no's to our prayers, are really working together to make us like Jesus so that God is glorified in Jesus as the firstborn among all of us. Like when Jesus stands on earth again and we're with him, God will have conformed us to his holy image so that everyone looks at Jesus and is like, we look like Jesus because he is the awesome one. Like he's the supreme one among us. That's what God's doing in answer to prayer, really. And even in that moment where he answered the prayer for her job, he was forming me to the image of Christ by strengthening my faith and who he really is. And so this is what God is up to in our lives, even in our prayer lives. And he says, do this with thanksgiving. Do this with thanksgiving. Thanks for all that he's done in the past, how he's answered in the past, but thanks for what he's going to do in the future. Thanks for future answers to prayer, whether yes or no. Living with a content, thankful spirit if you've ever sent a text or an email to someone and at the end of the email, you, you had asked them to do something and before they did anything for you, you, you may have said, thank you. They haven't done anything. Why are you saying thank you? You're saying thank you because you anticipate their ability, their willingness and their kindness. You're anticipating a positive answer. And even if it's not exactly what you want, they might come around and say, Hey, have you thought about doing it this way? Or I'm not able to do it because... There's a reason, a better reason behind it. And in the same way, we're praying and making supplication, saying thank you, expecting a faithful God who has brought us to believe in Jesus Christ, to be faithful to his children, to be benevolent and kind to us, praying according to his will. Then he closes in verse seven. And if you, here's the thing, brothers and sisters, if you pray like this, if, if you realize you're in Jesus, that he's brought you and saved you and called you to Jesus, to faith in Jesus, that you're accepted not by performance, but by the blood of Christ, that you're filled with the spirit, that you have perfect access to your father's throne room, that he's good and kind and give good gifts to his children. When you pray like that and you cast your anxieties on him, here is an incredible promise for those in Christ. The peace of God, verse seven which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Notice the verbiage, will guard. Not might guard, will guard. And so this, this peace that God manifests in your soul and your mind that is troubled, it's actually promised when you pray in this way. It's promised. Even if the answer to that prayer is not what you wanted, there's a peace that guards. And he uses this verb, guards. 
I think of, uh, I love the image of a secret service agent or the secret service around the president as he moves through a crowd. What are they doing? They're guarding. They're pushing people out of the way. Uh, I'm looking forward to fall season with football and cooler weather. Texas has been 109 degrees, no exaggeration. And so we're looking forward to that. But you always see the coach at the end of the game moving with the sheriff or with with the cops and they're pushing crowds out of the way, guarding these people. In the same way, the peace of God through prayer is like those those secret service agents around your heart, literally guarding and pushing out anxiety. That's why our most peaceful days are our most prayerful days. It's just, it goes hand in hand. And then he uses one more word and he says, this peace surpasses all understanding. I love that verb in the Greek. Surpasses means, what he means, it's greater than. It's more excellent than more excellent than understanding it. What do we often cry? Why, God? I don't understand this, God. Why is this going on? It's okay to say that to God. But usually what we're looking for is understanding, knowledge. And Paul says, when the peace of God guards your heart through prayer, that is better than understanding why. It far surpasses it. And I love how he says that because I'm a fixer. I don't know about you, if you're a fixer, like how do I solve this problem? What thing can I say? What can I do to fix the situation? That's my first instinct. My first instinct's usually not, let me pray about this. It's usually, how do I fix this? Then I'll pray about it. He just wants us to come. <clears throat> come and pray. And lastly, what I'll say is, this peace of God through prayer that guards our hearts and minds is only for those who have peace with God. The peace of God, day to day to day, through prayer, is for those who have peace with God. And we have peace with God through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ, who became human, who took all the punishment for our sins on the cross, who rose from the dead, who is in heaven right now, who offers forgiveness and repentance to every human being who will, by the grace of God, repent and believe in Jesus. Through Jesus is peace with God, not through performance, not through behavior, not through mindset, through Jesus. He is the way and the truth and the life. And if you have peace with God through Jesus, then pray. (laughs) Cast all of your anxiety every single moment and the peace of God will, promise, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for your holy word and we're so grateful for the power of this passage and for the promise of peace. And for all that our Lord Jesus has done for us to bring us peace with you through the cross. We're so grateful for this church and for its leaders and for its members and for visitors today. We're so grateful to have what we have and that you always are at our right hand. That you are near and that you invite us to come boldly through the high priest Jesus. That we have perfect access to our father the king. And that we have nothing to fear because you're in control We know that you're working all things to conform us to the image of Christ, that he might be the firstborn among us. You're working all things for your glory and our good. And we just submit to you. We put our trust in you. God, train our hearts to pray. Train our hearts to cry out. Train our hearts, God, to look to you first and not to our own wisdom or our own solutions. God, we do that way too often. And we're so grateful that you have this invitation to us, that you love us, that you're a good father. And that we can't even begin to fathom the depths of your love. Help us understand that love better. Help us to believe our security in Jesus better. That there's nothing that can separate your people from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. 
And we can always cry out to you day and night. We pray that you'd make this the motion of our minds and the motion of our souls. God, thank you so much. Be glorified the rest of this day and week and the rest of this service. In Jesus' name, amen.